Welcome to the AANEM podcast series, a monthly discourse on recent publications in neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic literature, featuring interviews with the authors and other experts, brought to you by the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. The AANEM welcomes your comments, suggestions, and questions. Email them to aanem at aanem.org. Hello and welcome everyone to this month's edition of AANEM Podcast. I am Wakar Rahid. I'm one of the neuromuscular physicians at University of Vermont. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Statman from the University of Kansas Medical Center and Dr. Samantha DeRusso at Ohio State University. I welcome you both to AANEM Podcast. We are here to discuss the invited review article titled Guidelines on Clinical Presentation and Management of Non-Dystrophic Myotonias, published in October 2020 issue of the journal Muscle and Nerve. Let me first start with clarifying the terms. So if you could please describe what we mean by myotonia and also uh, please elaborate the term non-dystrophic myotonia. Clinically, myotonia is the delayed relaxation of skeletal muscles after voluntary contraction. And then electrically, myotonia is defined by the repetitive firing of muscle fiber action potentials that are heard as waxing and waning spontaneous discharges on EMG. And what we mean by non-dystrophic myotonia is really those people with myotonia, um, usually clinically and electrically, that do not have progressive muscle wasting like that seen in the myotonic muscular dystrophies. Thank you. So, so in this podcast, we are not going to discuss dystrophic myotonias, which are systemic disorders associated with weakness and atrophy. Thank you. Could you please tell us what are the key reported symptoms in non-dystrophic myotonias, how did these patients present? Right, so the most commonly reported symptoms are muscle stiffness, which is the most common symptom, weakness, but this is usually episodic or transient, fatigue and muscle pain. And these symptoms usually begin in childhood. Patients may also describe symptoms such as falls, difficulty climbing stairs or difficulty running because of myotonia in the legs or inability to release their hand after a handshake. And all of these symptoms really do affect the quality of life for these patients. Quality of life perception in patients with non-dystrophic myotonia has actually been found to be overall similar to that of patients with myotonic dystrophy. And the presence of pain and fatigue really seems to have the greatest impact on their quality of life measures. Thank you so much. So once we understand the term myotonia and non-dystrophic myotonias, now if you could please give us the classification scheme of non-dystrophic myotonias. Yeah, so we generally first divide the non-dystrophic myotonias based on genotype, those with a chloride versus a sodium channel mutation. And then for those with a chloride channel mutation or myotonia congenita, these folks are either classified as autosomal dominant Thompson myotonia congenita or autosomal recessive Becker myotonia congenita. 
And then for those with a sodium channel mutation who all have autosomal dominant inheritance, we broadly classify this group further based on phenotype. Um, but as a general note, which we try to highlight throughout the article, in real life, there is a lot of phenotypic overlap between these classifications and even between those with different genotypes. Under the sodium channel mutations, first there is paramyotonia congenita. And the term paramyotonia congenita comes from the fact that the myotonia is considered paradoxical and that it generally worsens instead of improving with repeated muscle activity. In addition, with paramyotonia congenita, there tends to be worsening of myotonia with cold, and there can also be episodes of weakness, although they are generally not the predominant feature as they are with periodic paralysis. And then separate from paramyotonia congenita, there is sodium channel myotonia, or what has historically been called potassium aggravated myotonia. These patients have myotonia, but no episodes of weakness, usually worsened by potassium, and in general are less exacerbated by cold. This group is further subdivided into myotonia fluctuans with fluctuating severity of myotonia, myotonia permanence, or just kind of describing constant muscle stiffness, and then acetazolamide responsive myotonia. And then aside from the sodium channel myotonias and paramyotonia congenita, there are also other very closely related disorders, including hyperkalemic periodic paralysis with myotonia and then severe neonatal episodic laryngospasm. And as kind of alluded to with hyperkalemic periodic paralysis with myotonia, we are talking about those patients with myotonia and episodes of weakness, where the episodes of weakness are really the predominant clinical feature. And then severe neonatal episodic laryngospasm is really describing newborns with sodium channel mutations that present with recurrent episodes of laryngospasm and apnea. But later in life, these patients usually have a more typical phenotype of paramyotonia congenita or a sodium channel myotonia. So thank you, that was very useful. So if I have to summarize, non-destructive myotonias are channelopathies affecting either sodium or chloride channel leading to muscle membrane hyperexcitability. This subsequently causes myotonia, which could be elicited clinically or electrodiagnostically. So in the review article, yeah. there's a very useful table to differentiate between sodium channelopathy and chloride channelopathy. I want to take a minute to evaluate and differentiate them clinically and then subsequently um, on electrodiagnostic basis. So maybe if we can start with the clinical clues that can help us differentiate sodium versus chloride channelopathies. Yeah, absolutely. So I think where the muscle stiffness is most prominent is a good general clue to trying to distinguish between chloride and sodium channelopathies. Leg stiffness, uh, which may be described by patients as a difficulty in standing up quickly or climbing stairs, is more common in chloride channelopathies, whereas facial muscle stiffness is more common in sodium channelopathies. Along with that history, on exam, the presence of eyelid myotonia, or a delay in opening the eyes after forced eye closure, is indicative of a sodium channelopathy, whereas this is less commonly seen in myotonia congenita. 
Another possible clue to the genotype is the description or presence on exam of paramyotonia. And as a reminder, paramyotonia refers to that paradoxical myotonia or worsening of myotonia with repeated muscle activity. This is sort of the opposite of the warm-up phenomenon or improvement of muscle stiffness with repeated activity. You can try to get an idea of this on physical exam by asking the patient to close their hands as tight as possible for five to 10 seconds, watch them open, um, and then repeat this up to five times in succession to determine whether that speed of relaxation or speed of opening time improves, which is the warm-up phenomenon, or worsens, which is paramyotonia. If you do see worsening of the myotonia with repetition, this finding is nearly 100% specific for sodium channelopathies. On the other hand, the warm-up phenomenon, um, which has been classically described in those with chloride channelopathies, can really also be seen in those with a sodium channel mutation. So I think those are really helpful. And then separate from that, another helpful part of the history, maybe a description of weakness for just a few seconds, specifically after the initiation of movement, or the finding on exam of transient paresis, um, which in one study that was done was 100% specific for a chloride channelopathy um, and maybe even more common in those with recessive myotonia congenita. Um, and this kind of transient paresis is really in contrast to the episodic weakness that may be described in sodium channelopathies, which can last seconds, minutes, or even longer and is generally triggered by cold or exercise. Thank you. So how would you elicit transient paresis of biceps which described in the literature. Is there a way to elicit that phenomenon at the bedside? Yeah, so you can do it in the biceps or any other muscle. And I think in the one paper where this was described, it was they use the biceps and it's an easy muscle to use. So you can have the patient resist you at the biceps for five seconds. And then almost all of these patients are going to start out at five out of five strengths. And so if within that five seconds um, where they're resisting you, if their MRC score falls below five, then you follow that up with a warm-up exercise, which in the main article where they discuss this is described as 10 successive 10-second contractions with you as the examiner exerting counterforce. And if that MRC score increases then by at least one point after the warm-up exercise, then the transient paresis test is considered positive and indicative of a chloride channelopathy. So basically you're, you're first doing the five seconds, eliciting, trying to see if there is that fall in the strength really quickly within the five seconds, and then showing that after a warm-up um, that there is, there is some return of that muscle strength. Thank you. So just going back to the clinical clues. So what's your protocol of eliciting different kinds of myotonia, hand grip myotonia, percussion, eyelid myotonia. So do you do all of them? And do, would you do them baseline and then with, uh, with the warm-up phenomenon, did you apply a cold? So what's your protocol in the office to elicit myotonias? Yeah, so I will always um, try to elicit hand grip myotonia and eyelid myotonia and then you know, at a minimum, I'm always going to be looking for percussion myotonia, at least at the CNR eminence. And then aside from that, yes, I will look for the warm, I will ask the patient just about a warm-up phenomenon. And then I will try to elicit that by um, what I described by having them do usually the hand grip 
um, multiple times in a row to, to get an idea of that. I usually am not actually uh, subjecting them to cold in the office. That's not part of my, my normal routine. But at a minimum, I'm doing at least those things. And then if I do have a suspicion of a chloride channelopathy, then I will also add on that transient paresis test. How about the NISLAC? I don't often do that um, unless I am specifically thinking of a sodium channelopathy and I'm not already pretty certain based off the, the previous clinical exam. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. Maybe the next step I'd like to see once we have seen the patient, we have confirmed the myotonia, how do we confirm it on EMG nerve conduction studies so if we can uh, describe how to differentiate them on electrophysiological basis, these two channel operations? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing I want to say, and I should mention that we highlight this in the, the article, but I think the, ver the most useful thing you're going to get electrophysiologically is just electrical myotonia. And as a reminder, it's 20 to 80 hertz the repetitive discharges that wax and wane. We see this in 100% of patients. And while it doesn't distinguish between the chloride or sodium channelopathies um, in and of itself, having electrical myotonia with a clinical presentation, really the next step would be genetic testing, which will, will differentiate between the two. And that's going to be the definitive test to do it. That said, there are a number of electrophysiological clues that we found over time, and, and this really came from a time when uh, genetic testing was quite expensive, and so you had to guide your, your testing to either one gene or another. You couldn't really do a panel of tests with all the, the genes on them. And the first thing you can look at is you can look at the actual appearance of the myotonia itself. And this can be useful if you can do it, but most people are going to have trouble doing it because it does require some special software, the ability to isolate a single train of myotonia out from what are overlapping trains of myotonia, which is what most of us see on EMG. But if you look at them, there are some differences. In general, the, in chloride channelopathies, the myotonia is shorter in duration, less than a second and the amplitude is much lower than what you see with the sodium channels. But perhaps the most useful feature on, on the train of myotonia itself is the inner uh, discharge interval. And there was a Dutch study that showed, at least in the rectus femoris, that an inner discharge interval greater than 30 milliseconds um, suggested a chloride channel and less than 30 second, uh, milliseconds suggested a sodium channel. And this was about 95% discriminant between the two different types of mutations. Other than the EMG, on nerve conduction studies, there's also a very uh, classic test that we've done to help guide us to determine chloride versus sodium channel. And this is called the short exercise test. It, it kind of mimics what we do clinically, electrically. What you have them do is a isometric uh, contraction um, of abduction at the hand for about 10 to 12 seconds. Then you're going to record over the ulnar nerve. You record the, the CMAP amplitude every 10 seconds for a minute. And then you would repeat this three times. So you'd have three epics of exercise. And there's a number of patterns that have been described. They're called Fournier patterns. This is for the uh, investigator in the group who had originally described them. 
In the first pattern, what you see is after exercise, the CMAP amplitude is reduced a little bit after the first time you do it, a little bit more after the second time you do it, and a little bit more after the third time. This is called pattern one. This is mimicking what we would call paramyotonia, so worsening with each repetition of exercise, and it's seen almost exclusively with sodium channel mutations associated with paramyotonia congenita. A second useful pattern looks a little like what we see with the warm-up phenomenon in that the first time that someone does the short exercise test, you see the CMAP amplitude drop quickly, then quickly come back up and return to baseline. The second time it drops a little less and then returns to baseline, and the third time it drops a little less. And so this is mimicking what would be the warm-up phenomenon, and it's seen um, predominantly with chloride channel mutations. The sensitivity and specificity for these different patterns has been described as being fairly high, but I should just caution people uh, in our natural history study looking at the non-dystrophic myotonias, when we had people come back and repeated this test, about a third of uh, individuals actually um, would switch from one pattern to another from one visit to the next. And typically it was from a characteristic pattern like pattern one or two, which I described for you, to something we call pattern three, which is just no change on the test. Thank you. So just to clarify, so in pattern two, which is associated with chloride channel, do we is there any specific limit to it? Is it 50% drop in the CMAP, or do we have any any specific criteria for the initial drop in the CMAP after exercise? Yeah, typically you'd want to see a drop of, of greater than 20%. In this day and age, do we actually do the long exercise test? The long exercise test is, is a little less useful for the non-dystrophic myotonias. We do do it. We're mainly doing it for the periodic paralyses where the, they can have quite a significant decline in the CMAP amplitude after longer effects of exercise. The one exception is, is with, with paramyotonia congenita. You can also see a decrease on the long exercise test. That decrease typically comes a little earlier than you might see with the periodic paralyses. Okay. Um, I should say there is a role for this electrodiagnostic testing in the current age, even with the, the access to these uh, panels of genetic tests that can, you know, actually tell you whether someone has a sodium chloride channel. In the, in the situation where someone has a variant that's of unknown significance, then going back and looking either at the short exercise tests or looking at the characteristics of a train of myotonia might be useful in helping resolve the variant. All right, thank you. Okay, that was yep. going to be my next question. You know, um, again, what I found very useful is the, the diagnostic algorithm in the, in, the, um, in the review article, but maybe I can ask you to please uh, go over this diagnostic algorithm uh, one more time with us. So if you see a patient suspicious of non-dystrophic myotonia, how do you approach them uh, clinically, ENG, and then you go straight to the genetic testing, single gene versus the panel. How do you do that? Yeah, so in patients with a classic presentation with complaints of muscle stiffness, uh, clinical myotonia on exam, 
usually having a family history, and then importantly, without weakness or other systemic symptoms that would point towards myotonic dystrophy in either the patient or the family members. I often will actually jump right to genetic testing for SCN4A and and CLCN1. So usually I am testing both mutations at the same time just because of that phenotypic overlap. Just as as Jeff mentioned, this kind of going straight to genetic testing is really a, a difference compared to even 10 years ago just because of the lower price increased availability of genetic testing. However, kind of qualifying that, going back, if I if I have any question at all of the presence of true clinical myotonia on exam, then I will definitely perform an EMG first prior to genetic testing to confirm the presence of myotonia. In that really classic or typical clinical setting, if I do genetic testing and then there is a pathogenic variant in one of those genes, then I really am satisfied with the diagnosis. But on the other hand, if there is anything unusual about the presentation or if the genetics come back negative or with a VUS, then I am rethinking things. Going back to that, usually if if I have gone straight to testing for non-dystrophic myotonia and I did not test for myotonic dystrophy and I'm certain that they have myotonia, then really I'm almost always starting with genetic testing of myotonic dystrophy to make sure that it's, that it's not that. If I do the myotonic dystrophy genetic test and that's negative, then I'll kind of go back and do a couple of things to get more information. So like Jeff said, I'm going back. And at that time, if you have a VUS performing more electrophysiologic tests, the short exercise test, even the long exercise test, test if it's a periodic paralysis phenotype and just trying to obtain clues from those electrodiagnostic features. And then two, if, if a VUS is present, then I'm also talking to my genetics counselor, looking up the mutation, trying to get an idea of the predictive effect of that mutation and discussing with the patient um, and about having family members come in, performing a segregation analysis. All right. So my next question is, what are the alternative diagnoses one should consider in a patient with electrical myotonia, but in whom either the clinical features are atypical or genetic testing do not confirm non-dystrophic myotonia? Yeah, so if it's just electrical myotonia that's present, or if the clinical presentation is very unusual in some way, then I will expand the diagnostic testing. So usually I'm first thinking about other hereditary disorders like Pompe disease or myofibrillar myopathy. And when this is a possibility, I usually will often just end up sending a large gene panel for hereditary myopathy. Also, you can see more myotonia-like discharges in other non-hereditary muscle disorders like necrotizing myositis, but usually the clinical presentation is quite different. I also may consider Isaac syndrome in the appropriate clinical setting, although the discharges on EMG are really neuromyotonia rather than myotonia. And other than that, I'm making sure that the patient has had their thyroid checked since myotonia has been found in those with severe hypothyroidism and also doing a review of the patient's medications since certain drugs like chloroquine Colchicine have been associated with electrical myotonia. How about statins? Would they do that too? 
haven't seen a lot of patients with statins that have electrical myotonia, except for, like I said, in that setting where you have a statin-associated necrotizing myositis, definitely the discharges sound like myotonia. There's a, a list of drugs that have traditionally been, you know, associated with electrical myotonia, um, which would include the statins and chloroquine or colchicine, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a common finding. How about uh, what the article mentioned about the rippling muscle disease? Yeah, so in those patients, you're generally not gonna see electrical myotonia. I think that would be quite uncommon. So now we have evaluated the patient, we have confirmed the diagnosis. The next topic is how to treat them. So what are the different treatment options available for symptomatic management of myotonia, and what's your agent of choice? Right. And so, I, I mean, I think most of the drugs that we're using today would fall into the category of sodium channel blockers. And, you know, by far the drug with the most evidence supporting its use is mixilatine, uh, a class 1B antiarrhythmic um, you know, no longer used so much in cardiology, um, but used in disorders like non-dystrophic myotonia or other nerve hyperexcitability disorders. Mixilatines had um, two published randomized placebo-controlled trials, and there was a third trial that was done um, to help support approval of this drug in the EMA. And so it's really had three studies that have shown its utility um, it has quite a dramatic effect on symptoms of myotonia as well as uh, electrical uh, uh, features of myotonia. Um, the dosing, we usually would start with 150 milligrams twice a day and you would titrate up for effect. I, I usually go up to about 200 milligrams three times a day. Occasionally, I'll go a little bit higher to 300 milligrams three times a day. The the by far the most common side effects are GI discomfort. Um, at higher doses, people can get a dizziness or a tremor, and there's a very rare allergic reaction that can be seen to the, the medication. The other drug that has a, a placebo-controlled trial supporting its use is lamotrigine. I don't really use this so much, mainly because of the side effect profile. There is another cardiac drug called renolazine. It's similar to mixilatine uh, uh, in that it blocks sodium channels, except that it, it, it tends to work on slow inactivation rather than fast inactivation. There's been a number of, of open-label studies so far and then animal studies that would support its use for myotonia. It appears to be quite effective in the side effect profiles a little bit more benign. The other drug that's been described in the literature is acetazolamide. This one's a little harder. We're not exactly sure why it works for myotonia. There's obviously for sodium channels a, a, a subgroup that are defined by the response to this drug, and so it helps them. Um, but I haven't found it as useful in the majority of patients. Thank you. So just to clarify on mixilidine, once you start the patient, do you monitor EKG afterwards, or do you get the baseline EKG and do serially afterwards? Yeah, I'll usually have done at least one EKG 
you can repeat this after a month of, of, of therapy. None of the studies have really shown, you know, any difficulties with changes in electrical parameters that would really require stopping the drug to date. But if you're, if you're conservative-minded, it would be reasonable to do that. If your patient has a cardiac history, however, you may want to have them consult with their cardiologist before starting it. All right, thank you. So beside these pharmacological agents, you know, some patients are also interested in natural interventions. Can you please comment on such interventions? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the, you know, right now the level of evidence for these other natural interventions is a little bit lower, and so we don't really have as much evidence about their effectiveness. I think the one that probably has the the most evidence is a amino acid called taurine. It has some preclinical evidence suggesting it helps stabilize the membrane. There were some studies, it's actually quite a while ago, in myotonic dystrophy, so not non-dystrophic myotonia, that showed that it was helpful for myotonia. It's generally quite safe to take it, and so I'd say it would be reasonable to try taurine if, if you were so inclined. There's some preclinical evidence that calcium or magnesium might be beneficial there was an animal model where they induced myotonia and showed that increasing the extracellular concentrations of calcium or magnesium reduced the myotonia. In people, we don't have as much evidence for this. There are certain situations, though, where you might want to consider trying it. One would be someone, as you mentioned, who just doesn't want to take a prescription drug. The other might be in pregnancy where magnesium levels uh, tend to, to drift down a little bit. The last thing that I might mention is just exercise. I talk a lot about exercise to my patients in different inherited disorders of muscle. For the non-dystrophic myotonias, I don't think that exercise helps myotonia. So it's not going to be helpful in that sense. But like other people, exercise is going to improve cardiovascular health. Okay, thank you so much. That's, that's really helpful. Have you ever tried any of these supplements along with the, you know, maxillotine? I have. Um, I've had a patient who's tried magnesium oxide. Unfortunately, we, it wasn't a, a very successful trial for that person. So lastly, I want to discuss two situations which have the potential of causing exacerbation of non-dystrophic myotonias, and these include anesthesia and pregnancy. What do you advise in these situations to the physicians and our patients and their families? Yeah. For if someone's planning to have anesthesia, I, I think the number one thing is they need to tell the anesthesiologist they have a diagnosis of non-dystrophic myotonia. I think the strongest recommendation is to avoid depolarizing anesthetic agents like succinylcholine. Uh, These can actually make the myotonia stiffness much worse. There's been very rare reports of, of malignant hyperthermia. This is not common uh, in, in the non-dystrophic myotonias with anesthesia, but it would be worthwhile, again, for the anesthesiologist to keep this in mind. This could help uh, adjust their care in the event that they did run into one of these complications. I think the other condition is pregnancy. And, and like uh, many of our neuromuscular disorders, we really need to have more research into this. There's been just a few studies and one very nice study by Dr. Cephaloni and her group at the University of Rochester, where they showed that in about 60% of pregnancies, myotonia becomes worse during pregnancy. 
I would advise people in that scenario to talk to their obstetrician about options. One option might be to try something that was a supplement like magnesium oxide. But if their symptoms were really more severe, they could discuss whether or not it was safe to, to give a trial of a drug like mixolatine or anolazine. These are both what used to be called class C, which just means we don't really have evidence one way or the other of what's going to happen to the effect on the fetus. At least in animal models, they weren't teratogenic. The other thing about pregnancy, while myotonia worsens during pregnancy after the birth, it typically does improve. And though this can take some time for different people. So the other thing to tell a, a woman who is pregnant is that, you know, if she can manage her symptoms, it's likely going to improve after the birth. Thank you. So another supplementary question on the, on the use of anesthesia. Do you ever suggest local versus general anesthesia, or do you suggest something like propofol? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I do tend to uh, go ahead and defer to the anesthesiologist to, to make these decisions. I, you know, there's, there really isn't a, a large a large number of studies that have evaluated the, the different approaches to anesthesia. Um, I think it will depend a lot on what the surgery is. I mean, I think if the option is there to do something local, then I would say that would make sense to me. But again, it, it'll depend on, on what they're proposing to do. Thank you so much. Well, it's been extremely helpful and it's been fantastic. I really learned a lot today and I certainly hope our listener will learn as much as I did today. I encourage you all to read this review article, which was published in October 22 issue of the General Muscle Nerve. Uh, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much for having us.